There's a drenching downpour. There always is at the start of uh, Jurassic Park. I love this exchange where Malcolm radios through as, he, as Levine's complaining to Thorne, saying, you're driving like a maniac. <laughs> um, Malcolm radios through and says, it never crosses his mind to thank you. And then, and then Levine jumps in and is like, is that Malcolm? What's he saying? He's agreeing with me, isn't he? <laughs> really what that, that meeting would have gone like is just like, so what we do is we release dinosaurs into the wild. <laughs> That's it. Imagine, imagine Muldoon's face when they're suggesting this. Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And this is part two of our read-through of The Lost World, Jurassic Park, by Michael Crichton. Oh yeah? <laughs> I like your raptor impression, it's actually I know. genuinely it's- quite good. <laughs> <laughs> overly overly excited raptor is what I call that. And I am indeed overly excited. Yeah. So this week we're, we are going from the the part that was, what was oh the chapter called Costa Rica as far as far as the chapter called The Red Queen, which is where we begin. I really admire you for committing to that rolled R on oh, Costa yeah. Rica there. Like that that was that was when you were giving us the title last time and when you've given us the title this time you've been like, you know what? One R is not enough. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's the only way to pronounce Costa Rica. Well, I mean, I, I, and you know, obviously, both of us are absolutely kind of experts in correct pronunciation of Central American Spanish. So I don't see why we wouldn't, you know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you read along with us, that's the ch- chunk we're doing this week, um, and obviously, at the end, we're going to be doing reviews and feedback. So do send that in to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you get the time, give us a review on uh, on iTunes. Just help spread the word. Just just, just, just do it. Just Share do it the love. The, for the people, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the people, specifically me and Matt, are the people. <laughs> and, the pe- and the people of the world, Dave. So, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. On to this part, then. So it's the, uh, the, fir- the first that we see is something called the third configuration. Um, I think we mentioned this last time. It's just another bit of Malcolm sounding off, and then <laughs> I really love your commitment to like dismissing this because he's clearly put quite a lot of thought into it. And publishers don't put yeah. this sort of thing in books unless the the author has some kind of ridiculous pull, which clearly Michael Crichton did. Yeah. But he's put a lot into it, and you're just like kind of yeah, something, something, something. Images. I don't come to books for pictures, to be honest. <laughs> if I did, wouldn't be interested in these. Well, it's, it's, it's a load of triangles, some bigger than others. Um, and he says, in the intermediate phase, swiftly developed complexity within the system hides the risk of imminent chaos, but the risk is there. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, right, and I'm not saying it's necessarily the brightest shaft of light in a new storytelling style revolution, but you've got to admit that the sting in the tail is a sting indeed. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole, like, but you basically look at it and you go, blah, 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 risk. Yes. <gasps> and you're ready <laughs> and you're on, you're there. <laughs> so Costa Rica, as uh, it will forever be known, there's a drenching downpour. There, I love it. Oh, there always is. At the start of uh, Jurassic Park 1, there's a drenching downpour, isn't there? Um, yep, yep. He's doing yep. it again. Um, the as usual, the, the this this team they're trying to get over to site B, and uh, they're going through the checks from the officials. All the papers are in order, which is unusual, and um, the helicopter is going to 
take them to the landing landing site. It's interesting they just get a little bit of like recent history of this uh, sort of site B um, or well um, Isla Sauna as it's known, and um, mm. apparently there was like German mining stuff going on for a bit, and then that petered out like years and years ago, years ago, and then about ten years ago, a lot of Americans kept going out there. Up to something, For some Dave. Up to some reason. I love I love Michael Crichton's ability. I said this last time as well. Show a bit of bicep, cock and eyebrow, you know, and just because... And it's kind of ballsy because we're now, what are we, 30% of the way through this book? Hmm. Like, I think there's a point during this where you can, like, hear the plot click in to its, like, second, second act. Hmm. You're about a third of the way through. And he's still going, I know you all love Jurassic Park, and I have no shame, so I'm going to carry on making oblique references to what <laughs> went on in Jurassic Park. And you're all going to love it. Let's go. So they, they take the helicopter. You can take the helicopter there. Apparently boats can sometimes access through the caves as well. But um, it's quite rare that anyone ever goes there. Because, um, yeah, no one seems to... It seems to be quite dangerous to, to actually access, let alone you know, wander around on there. But then we move yeah. on to Isla Sauna, because that's precisely what these guys are doing. They're accessing the island, the land. Mad bastards. Mad, mad bastards. Yeah. Also, I mean, speaking of that madness and the rain that you mentioned before, mm. um, why is it, do you suppose, that really, really hyper-intelligent, multi-PhD major characters in Michael Crichton novels always plan their trips to dangerous tropical environments during the rainy season? Hmm. Like, it's not as if the rainy season is hard to predict in tropical environments. You pretty much draw a line on the calendar and go, after this, every day we get wet, and after this, every day we stay dry. That's that's it. And they always go, you know what we should do with all of this really high-end technology and equipment? What we should do is we should fly it into a very wet environment, untested, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, and really, you know, take our lives in our hands uh, as, as a result. Everybody on board? No reasons against this? No, let's go, let's go. Wonderful. You sound just like, it sounds like I'm doing the podcast with Eddie Carr. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you know what? Because Eddie Carr is, first of all, Eddie Carr's a legend, and I'll stand by that, but just as a character. But in the film, and I know we're doing the film later, I know we're not talking about the film now, but in the film, he is played by none other than Richard Schiff. He's actually played by Toby Ziegler from The West Wing. And (laughs) any time anybody wants to compare me to Richard Schiff or indeed Toby Ziegler from The West Wing, I'm on board. I'll have that. Yeah. There's a good point about the rainy season. I I just imagine trying to like give that as a reason to Levine for not going. It's the rainy season. (laughs) (laughs) Don't want to go. (laughs) So we'll come to... Levine's astonishing dismissiveness of the risk that's been taken on his behalf here. But I suppose I suppose at this point the characters are still operating on the basis that it's a little bit harsh not to go since the last <laughs> message you got from them is I can hear them, especially at night. Like that's a that's a get on the plane message, isn't it? Yeah. Never mind we'll, we will come to Levine's uh reiteration of his position in slightly different terms later on, I think. Yeah. But yeah. So they, they land on Isla Sauna, hop out the old uh, helicopter, get the equipment, which is some pretty big kit. Um, Eddie sort of wanders around and he's really uneasy at the silence because he's used to sort of things being around. I thought this was quite... This happens in a couple of, in another Crichton book as well, but it, it oh, really yeah. connected with me because, yeah, it really connected with me because whenever I've been somewhere really, really quiet, it's, gone, it's, like, it's a bit strange because you're used to, like... 
people mm. everywhere and sounds yeah. from everywhere. Very much, very, very much. I have that feeling a lot. So my, um, some of my family live in Canada, and we go out there into these like vast, wide open spaces on the prairies in Canada, and and I like they're very beautiful, but very unsettling. When you step out and you're like, "Where's the nearest human? All right, yeah. where's the nearest human I'm not related to? Oh, long way, long, long, really quite a long distance. Oh gosh, <laughs> you know, having grown up in Birmingham, I find that quite disquieting. Yeah. Uh, the, they've got these electric cars, as we said last time, um, which which means they've got a lot of a reliance on batteries, especially with the ten thousand volts on the um, on the trailer. But um, <laughs> this is this is never actually addressed, is it? Like, no. they, are they just packing mad batteries this yeah. time? Uh, and well, they're planning to get a lot of it from solar panels as well. Um, and Eddie's a bit mm. worried about that. And uh, apparently they said, oh, Eddie's my about- man, Matt. Eddie's my <laughs> yeah. man. Every objection I'm going to have to the engineering in this book, Eddie Carr sits there going, yeah, yeah, Dave's absolutely right. <laughs> he's, he's built in some little backups of his own, apparently, though. So um, <sighs> that, that could help. Eddie, what later. a legend. Yeah. What a legend. So they set up the trucks and the car and the, uh, and the bike. They got a bike on the bike, which is quite cool, like a motorbike. Nice, um, yeah. And he gives this, this is where uh, Thorne gives this sort of like talk about this gun that this, this tranquilizer he's got, like the biggest tranquilizer ever. Um, yeah. And it's this, it's, it's, it's quite um, memorable from the film actually, where Richard Schiff says it, it's like we're down before the animal feels the prick of the dart. Um, yeah. Which, which is a bit, it shows that the tech upgrade from um, from Muldoon's milk carton canisters from last time, Jumper, <laughs> <and> his tranquilizer. <laughs> I do remember that. Um, yeah, I, actually, I totally hadn't noticed that whole thing because I, I just love this as one of several things that happen in this section of the book, which are absolutely Chekhov's big terrifying tranquilizer rifle. Like the number <laughs> yeah. of things that get like set up over the next few pages as things that are definitely going to pay off towards the end of the book. Yeah. I was very happy about. I have to say though, there was a bit of me that was a bit sad that the author deploying the neurotoxin so powerful that if you shoot yourself in the foot you'll be dead before you get a chance to go oh fuck. Like, wasn't somebody with more of a slapstick sensibility? Because you know Michael Crichton's <laughs> never going to go there. But in another book, that's there's like dark comedy genius in that. You know, but people just accidentally leaving the safety off and sort of shooting themselves in the heel and dropping dead immediately. <laughs> yeah, or just like constant people accidentally firing off and just like ricochets next to someone's head. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that's like it would be like final destination wouldn't it like just <laughs> like how many different ways can people die from this neurotoxin yeah but it is yeah it, it is amazing because yeah Muldoon's was like it was like a four pint carton of milk wasn't it which he fired at a yeah. tyrannosaur it buried in the thing's neck for like a few hours and then it finally keeled over Whereas <laughs> apparently this one you'll be down straight away so I'm looking forward to seeing it happen yeah yeah uh, the stream is next. So the trailer starts setting off on the island. They can find a way around basically through a sat-nav. And I'm just been like, big deal. But I suppose it is because it's yeah. an uncharted island. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. Like, I thought the bit where they, they get, like, the satellite to scan over one bit and, like, get them a map of, and then they overlay their existing data and then they do other shit. Like, that was really cool. And I was totally on board. 
again, because I remember reading this when it first came out and this was all cutting edge or not even imaginable technology. Mm. And, but I did just have a little bit of like the child inside me died a little bit when I got two thirds of the way through this description going, yeah, this is really cool. This is really cool. This is Google Maps. This is, <laughs> this is fucking Bing Maps. Uh, uh, <laughs> Tempest Fugit map. Tempest, how things change. Yeah. Well, they, they get to this stream and uh, they find the torn backpack and uh, they're sort of looking around <gasps> and then they've got company. <gasps> Dave, they've got company. Hey! Okay. <laughs> Six of the company. I'm so proud. That was exactly the introduction that dinosaurs needed in this novel. <laughs> the first living dinosaur anybody's encountered in this book so far. It needed a pun of that quality, and I would like to <laughs> applaud you for it. Well done. So, so six of these little guys jump out. Um, Eddie throws a rock at them to sort of scare them off. He's like, let's give them a reason <laughs> to fear us. <laughs> Lobs a rock at them. <laughs> I'll admit, not quite so legendary behaviour, and I note with interest that, that that line is given to Pete Postlethwaite in the movie. Um, you know, who's far more kind of like, no, just kill the fuckers. <laughs> and he does it with a taser as well, doesn't he? <laughs> Oh no! I think that's the um, that's the guy who gets gets eaten by companies in the end who does that. Anyway, we'll get to that. Oh really? Yeah, we'll Ooh. get to that in the film. But yeah, so it's it's quite good this bit because they they sort of make their way back, like they sort of like mince their way back to the trailer around all these like chicken sized dinosaurs, and it's just this sort of general sense of unease and the unknown. Like they they don't look dangerous yeah. these ones, but it yeah. just gives everyone a clear indication of sort of just in over the head they are like you don't really know anything about what what this place is going to be like yeah and i i think here thinking about this there's potential here for this to be a bit more horror-ish than it actually is pitched as here hmm. you know because kind of what you want in a sense is these people who are like hyper confident you know like top of their field you know, real kind of apex humans coming into an environment and being faced by something the size of a chicken, which completely destroys their belief that they can understand the world. Mm. And that's like a thread which, and I mean, you, you see it a little bit with the way Malcolm responds in a later scene, where like he, he gets, he's like, he's breathing heavily and you can tell he's freaked out. But actually they don't, like, he doesn't dig into that very much, crime. Mm. He doesn't do the like emotional impact of this. It's just like, Oh, look. Dinosaurs. It's a bit weird. (laughs) Should we go back? You know, (laughs) that's as far as it goes. Now, um, Eddie's been, as you said, uh, Eddie's been moaning about the sort of lack of preparedness, especially with the the state of the equipment, how it's not been tested. And um, (laughs) the the fact that he hears that these companies are poisonous and... um, that gives him further cause to complain. And there's this great quote, I love it, on, on the next, next chapter in the road. He comes through on the on the sort of speaker and he says to Dr. Thorne, you don't come to a place with poisonous chickens if you're not sure your vehicles are going to hold up. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, he's right. He's right. Everybody in the audience going, yeah, Eddie, yeah, tell him, drop mics. <laughs> yeah. Um, they stop then in the middle of the road because a triceratops wanders out and it's described as the size of a hippo and I'm like as the massive dinosaur geek I am I'm like hang on a minute triceratops are way bigger than that but he's got my back Crichton because straight away (laughs) he says yeah but then the mum turns up and she's twice as big and it's it's a a nice way of sort of I think 
if you're not quite as into dinosaurs as I am, you see the Triceratops <laughs> come out and you think, oh, hippo size, yeah, that's pretty big. And then a massive one yeah. comes out and it's, it just gives you a sense Boom! of scale. Yeah. No, I actually, I, I will say this and I'm not actually kind of too ashamed to say it. I did get a little frisson here. I don't usually do this with books when they're describing things in terms of like their size and real life objects and stuff. And yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. You know, I'm amazed by that stuff in real life, but in books, you know, I don't want books trying to be photographs or books to be books. Yeah. Um, but I did kind of stop with uh, this description and try and imagine a hippo sort of sitting in the front room <laughs> and then imagine something twice the size of that and being <laughs> yeah. like, ah! like it was re- like I actually bothered to connect with it and it was it, it was all there. And you're right, like the size of these animals, I don't. This is the first of several things where he basically does what the movie does uh, the Jurassic Park movie does where he's like you know that sense of wonder he has yeah, to dig back definitely. in and get people to experience that sense of wonder and it's wonderful yeah yeah because there's this as the Triceratops wandering past and then you've got they come out sort of over the valley and they can see yeah. the, the others sort of all the all the herbivores but all the nice ones basically grazing, <laughs> grazing around all the ones you haven't already been primed to be terrified of yeah I felt it, Matt. I felt it. Yeah, you can see the steps really, can't you? So if you look at it this way, it's because you've got sort of the chapter before where it's setting up the unease, and then the chapter here where it's just all about giving you a big old sort of dose of wonder, and then sort of yeah. go on. From there. And then the running and screaming will begin. Later <laughs> on, <I'm sure>. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I'm so proud of you for getting that in there, but later there's running and biting. <laughs> Uh, next episode the next uh, chapter site B Uh, they pick up a signal from Levine (laughs) I'm at a pay from and so they they hear it coming through faintly on the speaker (laughs) 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 so um, so they go onward towards this facility um and it's a massive sort of complex in the middle of nowhere. And in the middle of the middle of the complex, there's an enormous manufacturing plant. I wonder what's built in there. So they, uh, they head into the building. I'd love it if that was where they were making all of the merchandise. If, if all of this was no more sinister than finding a cost-effective way of making Jurassic Park branded trainers. <laughs> yeah. Just lots and lots of lunch boxes just coming out because the geothermal power is still on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's running basically for free. We've got to move our operations down there. I mean, obviously, getting the workers in and out is a bit of a challenge. And the dinosaurs are less than ideal. But really, free electricity, though. <laughs> so, yeah, they park the cars up, they get out, and they, they walk into the uh, into the facility. Meanwhile, we go to trailer. And wouldn't you know it, We've got a couple of stowaways. They've only got the kids have only gotten hidden in um, uh, a crate or something. Those kids. Yeah. Did you believe this? Did you think it was anything like at all believable? Well, they've been flown there, right? Like they they would like the containers were on some sort of plane. Yeah. Unpressurized cargo hold from where was it? California to Costa Rica. Yeah. So that's, just, that's got to be a solid sort of five hours or so, hasn't it? Yeah, pretty cold. Uh, uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Though I hesitate, 
Uh, no, I don't think this is... I mean, like, kids being this stupid in novels, right, as I've said before, this is full-on Famous Five, bring it on. But, mm, I mean, I think a more realistic one of this would have been, you know, them doing the whole thing on the island and then finally going to open these open these overhead lockers and there are just two frozen children inside. <laughs> Imagine how dark that would have been. That would be awful. Oh, the kids tried to come along and be helpful with their knowledge and skills. And they froze because though they can hack computers using only their pinky fingers, they didn't understand planes. Oh, <laughs> That would move it a little bit beyond the PG-13, wouldn't it? It, it, would. <laughs> it would. I'm talking about it taking a slightly more horror direction, but I mean in that like psychological identity-based kind of, you know, kind of, <laughs> who am I, man? Uh, not in terms of, you know, the bodies of frozen children that to be found in the overhead lockers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, well, luckily the luckily Arby thought ahead and they packed some blankets, so they were fine. Oh, that's all you need, though. That that's <laughs> yeah. all you need. Next time I need to get a flight for cheap, I'll just stow away in the wheel arch using a blanket, and I'll be fine. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so they get out. They immediately take a piss, like both of them, because it's it's a long time not to go to the toilet. It, it turns out yeah. um, Eddie had clicked the um, all the lockers shut at the end, like just before they got on the plane. Which meant they were, they were Eddie, stuck. Eddie, your 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 perfection and methodical approach to things nearly killed these children. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, the perfection <laughs> it remains. Sorry, I, I, I do. I did sort of get that, but you know, Harvey starts peeing, and then like a minute later, he's still yeah. going strong, and he's like, he can't believe he's still going. I, I, I've experienced that myself. <laughs> <laughs> You're desperate for the loo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But have you had that after having been locked in an overhead locker for twelve hours with nothing but a massive pile of blankets for company? No, I suppose he's just his, his bladder's just thorn out, hasn't it? <laughs> so he's, he's <laughs> It's, uh, oh man, I really need to go. Also, it's strangely cold. Uh, <laughs> iced urine. <laughs> they, um, they, raid the, they raid the fridge for sandwiches. Um, show down on them. And then immediately they sort of go to sleep on the sofa. They've got a bit of a touch of the Alan Grant about the moment they where they, like, he sleeps all the time. And, um, yeah, yeah. and they sort of... I suppose they've... I can't imagine they've got a great deal of sleep on the flight. So they go to sleep. And Arby has a weird kind of dream where basically two Tyrannosaurus Rexes come past the trailer have a look in and stomp off I mean I've talked about Michael Crichton showing a bit of bicep this is him just ripping the sleeves off his t-shirt and going look dinosaurs yeah (laughs) dinosaurs it's happening don't worry it's happening it's happening in front of their very eyes and they're just sleeping through it um (laughs) I, I, I have to say this is this is about as far as I'm willing to go with dream sequences in, in novels like this. As you know, my, my tolerance for dream sequences has been fundamentally rattled by reading uh uh Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Where dream sequences are excuses for six thousand word excursions into the last time he had a peyote trip. So this was actually relatively restrained and I appreciated it. Yeah. Well we move into the interior and they find Levine's Pack. Oh, hang on a minute. So they must have just found like strands of his pack at the stream. They find uh, the actual pack on this couch. They go to have a look in it, and this rat jumps out. And <laughs> that's just—it's always disgusting, doesn't it? Maybe if it's a prehistoric island or whatever, you to find a rat. 
So that's true, but it's such a great fake jump scare, isn't it? <laughs> Just such a, like I can imagine Crichton being a little bit sad that Spielberg didn't use that in the in the film. Stevie, baby, I gave it to you, man. It's just the thing they go and look in the pack, and there's a rat. Oh, and you jump, but then it was just a rat. And you feel silly. Oh. <laughs> no, what do you mean? Leave the leave the filmmaking to me. Uh, they go into further into the facility looking for him, and um, past these off- offices and a control room with a map of the island and a load of pins in it. So they're thinking, actually, there might be some kind of network set up here. Um, before they reach the main lab. I really like this part of the book because it gives you a... It just does a bit more world-building, doesn't it? It gives you a sense of the the sort of story of the creation of Jurassic Park. Yeah, Very, very much. And this actually reminded me, the sort of the creation stuff and the wandering through abandoned offices thing. This is very similar to... Um, you ever played Portal 2? Uh No. Oh, Portal 2 is absolute classic, Matt. You mm. must. It's sort of set in the kind of Half-Life universe, and I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but basically it does this really amazing job of telling the story of a company through having your character walk through this massive facility full of abandoned offices. And it's so atmospheric, Matt. It's such a good way of doing things. Mm. And I totally, I had thought that that was quite novel, but actually, it's completely taken from, at least from this, and probably from things before that I don't know about, because um, it's it's great. This whole thing about like you know picking up bits of paper that are warning people about diseases and looking at the maps on the wall and all of this stuff, mm. and just being like, what the hell happened? That <laughs> yeah. all of this stuff was just left behind. Yeah, you also get a bit of a history lesson from from Malcolm again there as well. Malcolm's gone from, you know. I shall never speak of this again to let me tell you the history of John Hammond in Jurassic Park quite quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was actually a clause in all of my non-disclosure agreements that said uh, you can still talk about it if you're on Isla Sauna or on a Nublar, so go (laughs) ahead. Yeah. Um, So he says about this sort of, it all began with John Hammond and the quagga, which was this um, like extinct animal that they found some DNA of and tried to bring back. And that's how he hatched his mosquito plan, classic, uh, to, and then build the theme park, and he did it. And Thorne, at this point, just sort of stops and is like, are you joking? You actually built it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did it, you crazy son of a bitch. You actually did it. <laughs> um, Malcolm sort of canters through JP1, basically says he built it on the, this island in 1989. It all went wrong, and it all got destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> End. End summary. Um, so you just get a bit of so yeah, a bit of background before they get into the uh, into the actual main part of the lab. Oh, he also says, yeah, this it makes sense that this massive production facility is here because when they took the tour, they told them that you needed a th- you know, thousands of embryos for one successful birth. I think you said this at the time. Um, when we were doing the Jurassic Park podcast and taking the tour, and we sort of said, "Oh well, we'll, we'll give him a, we'll give him sort of we'll the benefit of the day." Yeah, but I like how he's gone back and I, I see other people said to him after the first one, "How on earth did yeah. you do all that?" And he thought, "Ah, I smell a secret." Wait, yeah. hang on there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, he's not one to throw away a plot line uh, carelessly, is he, uh, Michael Crichton? Remember the thing about the um, the in the movie. 
there's a whole thing with a boat smashing into a dock, which is absolutely what would have happened <laughs> if something else hadn't happened at the end of Jurassic Park 1, the book. Just like, oh, that's great. What would have happened with the boat? The boat would have gone mental. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, so the point of this place, um, it seems, is that this is where they did most of the like heavy lifting of the research and development and then the 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 sort of research lab on Jurassic on the sort of on the old island was where they uh you know just a sort of for show like the front the front um front of house if you like yeah um that's a good idea yeah I agree with you although kind of having on a different island obviously you have to do because otherwise this all of this environment would have been found and explored during the first movie but um it's a bit weird to me that, like, he's talking about, like, successful yields of, you know, less than 1%, thousands of eggs in order to get one living one. And they're doing that whole process here in this factory, hmm. which presumably means that in order to do the whole kind of, come on, little one, push, push, that whole thing with cracking through an egg in the uh, in the first Jurassic Park, hmm. um, they were having to wait until they had this like astonishingly costly viable egg with a dinosaur in it they were pretty sure was going to be born healthily. And then, then they put it on a helicopter in a <laughs> tropical cyclone zone and fly it from one island to another island, hoping that it doesn't become a dinosaur omelette on the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe once they've, um, once they've got the, the technique down, once they've got the, once they've got the code for whatever, genetic code works they could just use it again and again and expect it to work i don't know oh well i mean yeah no i suppose i guess i don't know i've I don't i've been know. assuming that it was all about like you know you make the genome and that you know that that's legit but then you put it in the egg and most of the time it doesn't work yeah um you know another question that arises from this and malcolm says this here is why when they destroyed when they destroyed isla nubula why didn't they destroy this island as well? And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that answer as well. So um, hopefully we'll get it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think they had one eye on the sequel, didn't they? they were like, <laughs> Guys, we can't destroy all the dinosaurs. <laughs> um, the next chapter is Arby. He wakes up and um, he sort of, as I wander around, accesses this computer because he, he feels bad and he wants to contact Thorne and say sorry. So he he hacked into the computers to um to try and do it. <laughs> I love the idea that that's the thing. He's like, I did this, Harvey. Why the hell have you broken the encryption on my systems? Well, I did it because I thought I'd done something that was going to piss you off. So I thought I'd better say sorry. Hang on, no, I can hear it. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'll just I'll leave. Shall I? I'm sorry. Although I, I do see, I do think from Thorn's character, it might be the kind of thing that would sort of just. Easy temper a bit. Oh, yeah, you solved it, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's true, actually. The sort of guy who's going to be like, I can forgive anything to a great mind. <laughs> a very dangerous person is what I'm saying, is the sort of person that would say that. <laughs> um, that's very, very brief chapter that. Arby tries to log on and encounters a problem, and he doesn't know the password. Um, we move on to laboratory. It's, it's classic thriller writing, that, isn't it? <laughs> We move on to laboratory. Um, there's this printout of a about a Gallimimus, and they're flicking through these memos. And again, it's like you said about the Portal Two thing. It's quite ghostly, yeah. this, isn't it? And really atmospheric, yeah. especially when you're reading memos addressed to people like Henry Wu, who obviously we we, we, yeah. we met in the last book. 
Um, they've had, and, they've had and a in a subsequent film with <laughs> suspicious Botox. <laughs> Henry suspicious Botox woo is what I'm calling him from now on. <laughs> They have um they've had problems with product yields because of E. coli. Like some idiot hasn't been washing their hands properly, it seems. Um <laughs> that means thousands who, of eggs Who has been patching. chopping chicken and getting steaks ready for the barbecue inside <laughs> the dinosaur lab? Guys, we've been over this. <laughs> Grills outside, okay? Yeah. It seems they've had they had loads and loads of problems with E. coli and just the dinosaurs hatching and then dying really quickly. And they were tearing their hair out. So Henry Wu came up with a spectacular plan. And I'd, lo- I'd love to have it in the boardroom when he came out with this one. He says, okay, I've got an idea. It, it, it might sound a bit mental, but stay with me. Um, we release the animals into the wild. And they're all sort of looking around like, yeah, we're not keen so far. <laughs> and then we collect them before they get so big that they're going to eat us. What do you reckon? I mean, it seems mental, but I suppose it's the desperate move from a desperate company, isn't it? It, it is, and and you know they say that in the text, and you know I, I but I think that's Michael Crichton being a bit like you know don't think about elephants, um, <laughs> because he knows that that's preposterous. Because really, what that that meeting would have gone like is just like so. What we do is we release dinosaurs into the wild. That's it. <laughs> Imagine, imagine Muldoon's face when they're suggesting this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! The money I'd give to see Bob Peck act out that facial expression, Matt. Oh, rip. I, re- I reckon they, I reckon they waited till he was on leave. Like, <laughs> well, we're going to call this Operation Sunbathing Tiger, which is to say. We're not saying a word about this until Muldoon is on the beach, all right? <laughs> That's how we get it. That's the only way we get it past him. Yeah, he comes back. Have a nice holiday, Rob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything new? Oh, well, the, we've got some more goat uh, goat cheese for the restaurant. Um, we've had one new Pachycephalosaurus born, and we've uh, released all the animals into the wild. So, uh, yeah, where did you go again? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? Is, the, say that again? All of the di- the, dinosaur, the dinosaurs, the things with, with the dinosaurs, the, with the weaponry and the dinosaurs have been released. Yeah, so that was the plan. Um it's not quite, I mean, it, it, there's no getting around it, it's crazy, but it's not quite as crazy um, because they have a radio tracking system on all the animals. Oh, that's all you need then. You'll know exactly where the Tyrannosaurus Rex is as it's eating your legs. <laughs> yeah, but that did, I mean, that does explain how they think they can sort of go and get them somewhere on the island because animals are notoriously quite hard to find once you release them into a massive jungle. Um, yeah. <laughs> So that's how they do it. <laughs> I mean, that's. I'm not saying it's not. You know, I'm saying you know, radio tag dinosaurs better than non-radio tag dinosaurs. I would say if you want to make sure that you're safe. But I still think once you've released more than about eight of them, it doesn't matter that you can see on a nice screen where they are, because the answer to that is going to be in your fridge. <laughs> you know, like the, they are coming for you, and knowing where they are is not going to help you in the slightest. Yeah, um, and also yeah. when you're coming for them. It's you know it's not like this is just a massive you know load of planes where you can 
like drive around and catch them. Yeah, as right. Soon, as soon as they run off into the jungle, you're going to have a hell of a time like chasing after them. <laughs> just imagine them. It's, it's yeah. crazy, isn't so, it? It's the worst plan ever. Yeah. What do you mean you couldn't recapture it? You've got the radio tags. It's over there. Go and get it. It's over there, <laughs> Mr. Wu, inside a jungle, on the other side of a ravine, tangled up in lianas, as indeed is my motorbike. If you want to capture him, get him yourself. <laughs> Fuck it, I quit. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand why Muldoon was such a massive drunk in the last one. If this is what passes for sensible corporate decision making in Gen, <laughs> your two options are heavy drinking or early retirement. Those are the two things you've got in front of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've just mentioned here, I love the the stuff where they're wandering around past, like, employee lockers and the safety notices on the wall saying, you know, make sure you wash your fucking hands. Like <laughs> Get it together, guys. <laughs> um, but it's this is sort of like classic apocalypse stuff, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah, where there's yeah, been totally. an outbreak of something and all these sort of attempts to stop it have been brought in and no yeah. one's around anymore. So presumably it hasn't worked. Um, yeah, the they go they go into the well they see the manufacturing room which is this massive room with all this robotic machinery and it all looks in really good condition compared to a lot of the other areas and they realise that it's it's been sealed it's um it's sterile in there oh. which suggests considering it's still sealed that there's still power here uh. interesting yeah mysterious. Uh, meanwhile, Arby has successfully logged on to the site B in Gen Network. Um, we know from the first book, you know, that they weren't the greatest in sort of cybersecurity in Gen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it, it's, it's, you know, it seems that, yeah, site B is no different. I think Arby tries to log on and he, fail, he enters the wrong password three times. And instead of infuriatingly locking you out and asking you to sort of send an email like everywhere else these days, it goes, yeah. uh, you seem to keep getting the password wrong. Do you need a hand? Uh, do, you, do you need help? <laughs> <laughs> it's the flipping best thing. I, lo- I just, I love it. I, I, I love this whole depiction of kind of cack-handed digital design yeah. because it's from the late 80s. Although it's worth saying there are a large number of systems today which are designed with about this level of... Bambi-esque naivety. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, only a child could possibly come up with a solution to this as well. Like, as in all Michael Crichton novels, if you're computer literate, you're younger than 12. That's yeah. the deal. Yeah. Yeah, so he tries to log on three times. It says, no, come on. Um, uh, do you need help? And he's, and then he says, well, why don't you, reg- why don't you register an account and then you can have all the access to Site B. So he does that. I assume he's getting like loads of emails from InGen, like advertising stuff now. <laughs> That's the trade <laughs> Coming soon, 30% off Tyrannosaurs. <laughs> We've got two of them running around. If you can get them, you can keep them. <laughs> Press release. We've released all the dinosaurs into the wild. No, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Press brackets dinosaur release dash. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Um, so Arby's, Arby logs into the network and he gets access to this camera network all over the island. So suddenly he's got eyes everywhere. And this was quite, I mean, this was quite an exciting development. Yeah. You can see everything. It's like a mini yeah. control room. Um, so, and that's good because yeah. I quite enjoyed the dynamic last time of them being able to sort of kind of see stuff under the parts of the island in, in one place. So I'm, 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 it makes a welcome yeah. return that. 
Mm. Uh, move on to chapter called Power. They the the guys inside are, are discussing, you know, what this means in that it suggests people are still around. Mm. If there's still power running. Um, <clears throat> and they go to the sort of the area where the the power the sort of power plant bit, and it turns out it's geothermal. So it's um, yeah, it's actually sort of been ticking along on its own for years and again Crichton says you know in real life um, this kind of thing should have broken down years ago but they've got some kind of new tech and it's fine you just been kept going <laughs> but because of science magic <laughs> because is of happening. the wonders of medical science as Ian Malcolm said that's it <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is really, that's Michael Crichton's version of pay no attention to the man mm. behind the curtain, isn't it? That sort of like, <laughs> don't think about this too much. In the real world, it doesn't work. But in this world, it totally does work because of science. Yeah. They're outside this massive sort of garage and half of it's collapsed because obviously a massive dinosaur has gone past and bashed into it. And um, yeah. I think they, they say, you know, didn't they expect this to happen? You know, you need to build sort of stronger buildings and fences and stuff if you've got the animals yeah. wandering about and we yeah again it's it's because they didn't expect them to get this big <laughs> they had no plan existed for them to release massive dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> imagine being the caretaker the you know the the eddie car 1.0 you know the guy whose job it is to be there and be like guys i can't stress highly enough how unplanned we are for this <laughs> we did not design for this level of stress for example having a triceratops walk over the the only bridge we have to the docks <laughs> not a good thing for the bridge doesn't bother triceratops a bit but it really fucks us up yeah i do think even eddie car that you know, our Eddie Carr is probably looking at this, thinking, "I don't think our kit's going to stand up to that." It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, particularly since he's started off by saying, "You know, we've loaded. With, you know, the whole thing hinges on the existence of these solar panels, <laughs> and they're really quite fragile. And I had to design custom dampers for them to keep them really happy and unsmashed and yeah. stuff like that." <laughs> and then he's looking at this environment, which has got animals loose on it that can take a chunk literally out of a block of flats. <laughs> Um, guys, <laughs> could we go? We have this great, um, this great sequence next where Arby buzzes through on the radio, and he's not apologising. He's telling them to get in the car because he can see something, and uh. like they all act with sort of incredulity, like, "What are you doing on the island?" It's the Chris's classic, isn't it? Like someone's yeah. got a, a message of warning. And the people getting the message are so distracted by who's make, sending the message that they're not really listening for a while. Yeah. Um, but they hear the stomping and they see on the monitor, because uh, there's, there's a little sort of screen in the car, um, and Arby fires up a picture of the Tyrannosaur walking towards them, which uh, which gets their asses in gear pretty quickly. It focuses the attention. <laughs> yeah. And this is the bit that you mentioned earlier. Whereas the Tyrannosaur like arrives and they've all managed to make it into the car, uh, Malcolm has this sort of episode, doesn't he, where he, he basically shuts down and just sort of stares forward, yeah. and he's just yeah. trying to just just deal with being back yeah. in the almost the yeah. exact same situation as he was in the first in the first book. Yeah, yeah, and more. I feel should be made of this. Like when I read this as a teenager, I didn't care because I knew that the purpose of Malcolm was not to be a fully rounded character. The purpose of Malcolm is to be the guy who is standing in front of the dinosaur on my behalf. Hmm. Um, but 
I don't know. There's just it. The, reading it this time really made me look back on the kind of how Malcolm has come to be in this position, hmm. and it all seems a bit too much like a character saying. I will do this because I am the character that the audience knows and you need some sort of a vehicle to get me to Jurassic Park again. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm into this. But surely, if you've experienced a trauma like this, the last thing you do is go along with a plan, which in in many ways is even less well-resourced than the one that got you fucked up last time, <laughs> and go, yeah, definitely... I mean, is he just being absurdly overconfident to this point? Is he just, like, treating it as, like, an academic abstraction until he's faced with a dinosaur again, do you think? Yeah. I think all those things, like, the last thing you should be doing is going on an island like this if you've been through what you've been through. All that stuff yeah. is literally going through his head right now as he's sitting there. <laughs> 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 That's right, reasonable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're right. It is, it's unlikely that he'd end up here. Um, yeah, no, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the I like the fact that they've managed to get him in the situation where he's literally in a car as well, watching the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> come up, which yeah. is exactly what happened last time. He knows how this ends. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, exactly. It looks like it's going to be fine because the Tyrannosaur like completely ignores the car, and he, yeah. it stomps past. It, this is a sort of a, a, a game trail, isn't it? And we had little yeah. hints earlier on um, in the previous chapters. I quite like how he. He sort of um, he builds in these hints about what what's around, and then sort of reveals it quite neatly. But the, yeah, yeah, the Tyrannosaur goes past, and it's almost in the it's in completely in the jungle again when its tail hits against the uh, against the car, and the <laughs> the line is they heard a low and certain growl from the jungle, and I just heard the Scooby Doo. <laughs> and now that is all I can hear. Thank you very, very much. Um, so the Tyrannosaur comes back. It, it's got something in its jaws. Probably best not to think about it. Um, <clears throat> it bends down, has a look at the car. It, it wriggles. It sort of backs. There's no other way to say it. It backs its ass up onto the car, wriggles around. <laughs> and. And, and leaves a suspicious white smear all across it. I I admire Crichton here for going to both gross out, like to increasing the tension by having it be a Tyrannosaur encounter where the Tyrannosaur doesn't seem to care that mm. there are humans there, but also um, like to go into this really weird place of being like, so mm. a dinosaur, when you first meet, it could be friendly could be kind of weirded out but not too bothered about you, could ignore you, could attack you. We've done all of those. What else could it do? Mark territory. Here we go. Come on, hitch them up. Here we go. Like, And it does. You're absolutely right. It backs it up. Backs it on up. Mm. <laughs> like, like it's in a really <laughs> terrible mid-noughties hip-hop song, you know? Like, Yeah, So, so that's what happens. And then it leaves. Um, I'll say this for the car, the design. Um, it, it stands up to a dinosaur sitting on it, uh, not just any dinosaur, but a tyrannosaur, so they've built it well. Um, it wanders off, and then it turns out um, Arby catches sight of Levine, and um, <laughs> this is this is like so bizarre, it's hilarious. He's riding a bicycle, um, chasing the tyrannosaur. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's going on? <laughs> All we need then is Levine sort of waving a fist at the dinosaur, the Tyrannosaur, as he goes, You come back here, you! Pedal, pedal, pedal. I'll get you, you! Pedal, pedal, pedal. So, yeah, um, so Levine's chasing after the T Rex. So Thorne decides to go after him on the bike and get him back. There's a bit of a short argument between Thorne and Eddie here about who's to go. And Thorne's like, you're the only one who can yeah. work the equipment. And I was thinking, bloody hell, Thorne. You didn't even <laughs> work out how to use the equipment. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did you not think, do you know what, Eddie, on this flight over, which while not long, it's probably long enough for you to give me the, the basics. And since I am in charge of the design, I probably should know most of how this stuff works. Yeah. Um, how about I, you tell me? <laughs> I think he he probably does know. It's just an ex- I, I get the feeling this is sort of an excuse from Thorne saying oh, I just want I just want to go. Um, I I want to put myself in danger rather than anyone else. Um, yeah. Also, yeah. I want to go and chase a dinosaur. Please, I will go and chase a dinosaur. Dinosaurs woo is probably also what's going through his head <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> so he takes this motorbike, electric bike, so you can't really hear it. Heads off in the direction of both the Tyrannosaur and Levine. He goes past these partial carcasses on the way and he realises that he's approaching the nest. Uh, Which is the next chapter. Nest. uh, There are two. Yes. There are two Tyrannosaurs and a baby. Um, In fact, I think there ended up being... It turns out there are two babies in the end in the nest. Um, This is great because it's... It's kind of what yeah. they've sold you with the Lost World, which is it's dinosaurs, but they're not in cages anymore. They're just doing their own thing in the wild. And this really sums it up. It's two yeah. tyrannosaurs with a nest with a couple of kids. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, tyrannosaur kids, right? There's not some kind of, like, Mowgli situation where they found and adopted <laughs> a human child and teaching him how to be a, uh, how to be a tyrannosaur. No. No, no, I think I think that's going to be Jurassic Park 5, actually, or 6. Which I was going to say, you'd pay to watch it, though, wouldn't you? Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Jurassic, Jurassic World, colon, fallen, everything will be, you know, a small baby being raised by tyrannosaurs. Yeah. Um, Thorn creeps forward, watching them carefully. Um, <clears throat> Arby can see a bit more, so he can see the full nest and the the eggs and the the two babies. I think they're they're feeding the um, the babies with whatever it was in the uh, Tyrannosaur's jaws. Um, Arby, Arby's looking through the cameras and he sees one of them move, and it's obvious that Levine's moving a like repositioning a camera. And this is the <laughs> moment he's chosen to do it when both the Tyrannosaurs are there. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get them both in shot. Get them both in shot. Come on. Yeah. So Thorn makes his way to the bottom of the tree where Levine is. And he just hears this rustle and then an oh shit. <laughs> and then Levine <laughs> just drops out of the tree. <laughs> Doesn't seem terribly Levine-ish, does it? To be like so unfocused uh, like on your on your task that you forget you probably shouldn't make any noise near the Tyrannosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh shit. <laughs> This is one of the many moments um, in this book, um, especially sort of with Levine, that just makes me astounded that he has managed to not get himself killed on this island on his own for so long. If he's been running around doing shit like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's 
no, absolutely no self-preservation instinct whatsoever, has he? You know, for science. <laughs> and yeah, how he's, I mean, we actually even, um, like in the, the conversation that comes up, somebody says, you were very lucky. And he doesn't seem to process that. He seems to be like, yeah, but you know, science. So yeah, of course it was going to work. Like he's almost, he's so convinced of his site, the value of his scientific worldview that he's gone all the way through it. And he's ended up in a completely sort of, uh, completely data free position where he's like, I would have survived because it was necessary for science. Fate would have decreed... Oh, no, I don't believe in fate. Um, life would have found a way for me to stay alive. There we go. Um, like, it's just, just brain-numbingly reckless. But I, I'll, I'll tell you, Matt, I have missed him. I have... I need... You know, this, like, this chasing Levine, Levine across the world situation, fine. But now he's back, I am confident that I'm going to get some crackingly self-absorbed lines. Go! <laughs> Yeah, so Levine falls out of this tree, and uh, immediately the Tyrannosaur turns, that both the Tyrannosaurs turn and roar at him. And you think, oh no, get out of there. And he's, he's bloody lucky that a guy with a motorbike's just shown up. <laughs> I agree with that. He is lucky. Mm. So the Levine, T-Rex, however, the- sorry, we'll get to that, sorry. <laughs> so the T-Rex um, gives chase... Um, Levine jumps on the sort of back of the bike, and uh, and they speed off. And uh, it's, it's sort of th- from Thorn's perspective, this isn't it? So he's sort of, he can hear the dinosaur pursuing him, and he's going, he's like pushing the 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 bike as fast as it will go, and he bursts out into a clearing. He can hear Levine shouting something, but he ignores him. And then when he finally stops, <laughs> Levine just goes, "You're a terrible driver." It's like <laughs> 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 he stopped chasing us ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's such a good reintroduction of a dickhead character. Like, I'm getting everything I asked for here in The Return of Levine. Levine's approach to being rescued from an apparently apparently infuriated, enormous, carnivorous dinosaur is to go, for fuck's sake, Thorn, <laughs> sort yourself out, mate. Come on. <laughs> There's a great... Uh, the Levine bit as well, he's it, it, just... I love this exchange where Malcolm radios through as, he, as Levine's complaining to Thorne, saying, you're driving like a maniac. Um, Malcolm radios through and says, it never crossed his mind to thank you. And, um, <laughs> and Thorne's like, evidently not. And then, and then Levine jumps in and is like, is that Malcolm? What's he saying? He's agreeing with me, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I love how quickly Levine gets to... I'm right, everything that I expected was on board. Also, obviously, everybody agrees with me, yeah? Like, yeah. I'm beginning to wonder how this kid survived school. Because I, <laughs> I, I do not in any sense support the unpleasant behaviour of children towards other children in school. You know, but still, I mean, if the, if a 12-year-old was acting like this, I think they would probably struggle to get through high school, don't you? <laughs> feel like, you know, a certain amount of law of the jungle would be applied there. <laughs> ah, but he has the power of money, Dave. He's <laughs> got enough money to buy up <laughs> Yeah, anyway. that's right. What am I doing imagining you went anywhere near the kind of high school that I went to? No chance. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Levine's life is saved. Um, he, he, he doesn't really consider him to be, uh, that, that he was in any sort of serious danger. He also seems to think that... Um, 
Yeah, his, his, I'm shitting my pants, please come and save me call last time they were in touch was actually him say, I think we heard it, what happened, but what I think he imagines when he remembers this is him sort of kicking back in the, like, in some sort of lab saying, yeah, guys, <laughs> get out here as soon as you can because it's, uh, I'm, I'm uncovering a lot of interesting research. <laughs> and, uh, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and when I said with a quaver in my voice, I can hear them, especially at night. What I meant was, <laughs> nocturnal research opportunities are presenting themselves at a pace too great for a single scientist <laughs> to engage with. Yeah, so I'm reluctantly yeah, so, obliged um, to get you wankers to come and help me out, is basically what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, we then move through the fourth configuration. Um, this is uh, this is where we hit, he says we're approaching the chaotic region. Oh yes, hey, come on, hey. buckle up. That's that's mathematician <laughs> talk for buckle up. Yeah, that's exactly it. So then we move to the chapter called Levine. Uh, they go back to the trailer, and the kids are like, "Hey, we're here to help." And Levine sort of puts his like palm to his forehead. <laughs> it's like he's these along. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, it does seem like somebody has, has thought, well, Levine is reckless and extremely um, unable to understand what safe behaviour is, so I will see him, his flying alone and, un- and unsupported without technology to a dinosaur-infested island, and I will raise him going yeah. there with kids. <laughs> Yeah, and the kids say, oh, we've been really helpful. And Doc Thorne's like, yeah, they have. They've really been helpful. And I thought, Arby's been helpful. Kelly's just basically eating some sandwiches. But, okay, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, one begins to see why it wasn't seen as necessary in the film version to keep two children. (laughs) And, you know. Yeah. The um, so we hear sort of Levine's tale of what's sort of what's happened on the island um, since he's been here, saying that um, we've got a he said he was attacked at the st- attacked by the stream. Dave is attacked at the stream. Not sure by what though, because he he, may, he says here later on the the Velociraptors show up at night and they chase me up a tree basically. Yeah, um, <laughs> but. That suggests that it wasn't a velociraptor that attacked him during the day. Well, that's interesting. Is this... Are you about to make a pitch for this being um, the Tobias Funke dinosaur? Is that what's, <laughs> is that what's happening here? Yeah. <laughs> Carnotaurus, yeah. <laughs> Carnotaurus, there are dozens of us. Dozens! Dozens! <laughs> Exit stage left to Saurus. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be him. Frightened um, inmate number two, Saurus, yeah. <laughs> I want it to be him anyway. Um, <laughs> okay, I, I, knowing nothing about Carnotaurus and having read this book many times, I never noticed a Carnotaurus <laughs> in it. I'm just going to have to take your word for it on this one. Experience has shown things do not go well for me when I try and know more about Jurassic Park than you do, but still... <laughs> Okay, so Carnotaurus watch. We've had one body, one dead body, probably, and uh, and possibly one maybe attack. That that probably is a bit tenuous. I would downgrade both of those ratings to one dead body, perhaps, (laughs) and and one attack, if we choose to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
So, so anyway, the, the 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 things that showed up at night were definitely with, were velociraptors. Mm. Um, he had to hide up a tree, and they couldn't get up and get him. He, he then found this lab, and, uh, and I think things seem to start looking up since then. He seemed to bit, get a bit more comfortable on the island. He says, uh, "Oh yeah, there's no need of rescue." Um, but I'm glad you're here because it's time for us to get started and really get into our research. Um, one other thing he says is, "We've got to move. I had to move fast. I had to come straight to the island because the government are concerned about another disease outbreak, so they're going to act soon." And considering how they acted with Isla Nubula, where they basically yeah. firebombed it, it. yeah, um, yeah g- getting to the island which they may be about to firebomb <laughs> as quickly as possible. Seems extremely foolhardy, but that's what he wants to do. Without telling them as well, do you know what I mean? Like, what you would actually do if you were doing this is you would say to a certain select number of people, including the Costa Rican government, I'm going to be on this island, so if you firebomb it, there's going to be hell to pay. Uh, yeah. But no, what he actually does is turn up and go, I hope they see me from the air before they press go. That's my plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he's 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 nothing if not a risk taker, is he, Levine? I mean, he's, we've just seen him chasing a tyrannosaur on a bicycle, so we should really know that. <laughs> well, and then like verbally abusing and calling stupid the guy that came to rescue him from the dinosaur that was attacking him. <laughs> yeah. um, I love that, by the way, that like he says, "Oh, it wasn't attacking me; that was a defensive movement." It's like, yeah, but it was still running towards you angrily with its jaws open. Yeah, not sure it makes much of a difference. You know what I mean? Like, so your argument is not you shouldn't have captured, you shouldn't have come and rescued me, so much as you should have stopped sooner. Although I'm not sure, really sure what the upside of that would have been, but it's definitely not accurate to say no, no, no. He just looks angry. That's just his way. You know, product of his environment. He's actually a <laughs> lovely tyrannosaur. He yeah. was going to eat you, Levine. Get your yeah. act together. Yeah. Um, we move on to um, Dodgson. Your favourite name. Hey. The Biosyn lot with the back. Um, evil Court. Nasty Ink. Even, they even eat eggs evilly. Basilton's eating eggs really oh. noisily. This was really... I found this quite disgusting, actually. <laughs> Someone noisily eating eggs. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, it was... It, I, I agree with that. Although, um, whenever anybody wants to tell me that there is there are Huevos Rancheros available... I don't care how they're eaten by the people around me because I'm focused on the Huevos Rancheros. So <laughs> I've no idea. Yeah. Well, <laughs> professor Basselton, um, sort of PR professor, he's um, very interested in how we reveal our discovery when uh, we get to the island and find the dinosaurs. Yeah. He wants to do it through an academic journal. So you think sort of in a press conference would be like a bit classless, basically. Um, what? I was going to say, rather than putting it out through the Sun's showbiz page. <laughs> you know who who was spotted on the town with who was yeah that's brilliant isn't it who was spotted on the town with long time star Tyrannosaurus and young up and coming hopeful Carnotaurus <laughs> George oh, Basilton Regis Professor of Biology at, at Stanford by the way do you enjoy that as well that apparently this university this great American university in the Republic of the United States of America has a Regis Professor of Biology. <laughs> which which king has endowed this chair exactly is my question there. Which king turned up and went, yeah, Stanford, definitely my sort of vibe, you know. Anyway, you can have a Regis chair over there. Money, money, <laughs> money. 
Yeah, this is well, the sort of shit that I really shouldn't notice and make jokes about, but I just it was really funny. The idea of some, <laughs> some like lost Eastern European monarch turning up there and like going big, not going home. Yeah. I'm a king, actually. I'm going to endow this. <laughs> so we've got Basilton. Um, he's uh, he's he's sort of there to to, to give it a sort of veneer of respect, uh, academic respectability. What they're up to. Um, you've also got Dodgson's other uh, get it done assistant now. Originally, it seems that Ed James, uh, sleepy Ed James, uh, the worst <laughs> private detective in history, he's been sensationally axed from the tour. He's got a guy called Harry <laughs> King with him now. <laughs> That's amazing. That's incredible. Ed, you're as ugly as sin. You can't play. You've plutes. You root the band. That's what I, I imagine him just cracking that out in his face. <laughs> um, subbed in in his place is Howard King um, and these two guys Ed James and Howard King the names are so similar really that the first couple of times I read this I don't think I really realised that they were two different people I just thought this is the <laughs> detective he's still got with him um, yeah 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 but no different guy yeah he's known as Dodgson's assistant <laughs> he just seems to be this like guy just like he seems to just be the muscle there's this younger guy who's like yeah. heavy set and he's currently dragging yeah. a fisherman around by his lapels. <laughs> if, if fishermen have lapels. Do, I mean, fishy lapels, perhaps, but lapels nonetheless. <laughs> the fisherman turns out to be Diego's dad. Ooh, Diego. Oh, he's got bad news guns. in his future. And, and we, yeah, we're never going to see this, this storyline play out. I want more of that, more of the, you know, this is the Austin Powers, you know, nobody ever thinks of the families of the henchmen thing. Yeah, you know, I want I want there to be more of a scene of like nobody ever thinks about the guy whose job it is to get killed horribly in within five minutes of yeah. arriving on the island. Yeah, Diego's dad is coming out with all these many reasons why it's far too dangerous to sail to the island today, and <laughs> until Dodgson sort of um, um, opens this briefcase full of cash and he just goes, "Let's sail!" Fisherman's <laughs> 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 well up for it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, and you would be, wouldn't you? I'm sure that represents, you know, more than a year's wages or whatever for this guy. And like, shit, yeah, I'll risk my, I'll risk my life for that. Um, yeah. But um, I do. There's a bit of me when I see a scene like that now, where I'm like, kind of, ah, uh, because you know, that's just, re- you know, reinforcing a guy like Dodgson in all of his horrendous beliefs about his superiority in the world. And I just, mm. I would not for the purposes of the narrative. For the purposes of the narrative, it would be shit. But for the purposes of human dignity, I'd love it if he just took one look at him and went, your money's no good here. Threw it back in his face and left the bar. <laughs> Be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good to me. Uh, we will go back to the island for our last chapter for today. The High Hide. Um, they're putting this scaffolding up. Um, it's, they're basically creating this. It's basically, yeah, there's a little bit of scaffolding with a little hut on top, and that's where they're going to observe the dinosaurs from. Um Ooh. And they put some sort of uh, poisonous ferns all around it to give it some camouflage. This is quite—I quite like this. I mean, I, again, uh, my first instinct is to say this seems like crazy dangerous, like getting stuck up mm. a high hide with dinosaurs around. But just the—I'm kind of with Levine here. Just sort of the the thought of being able to sit up there and just observe dinosaurs for ages yeah. is just too tempting yeah. to to consider yeah. any implications yeah. of it. 
Well, I agree with that very much. And I actually think this is a really interesting thing about how Michael Crichton is driving the plot forward in this bit of the novel, where we, the audience, with a memory of Jurassic Park, which he knows perfectly well we have because he's been playing up to it, you know, he's been, you know, playing up to it the entire time. Um, but he knows that that's how we feel. And he knows that we're sitting there going, don't do that. Just leave. Just get him off the island. That was the like, Get him off the island. Leave. And... Hmm. What he wants us to do is experience the fact that scientists, the kind of scientist heroes of his worldview, are the kind of people who would say, yeah, but the study is too important, the knowledge is too valuable, we have to do this, you know, for science. And yeah. um, uh, and I, I really like that he's done that, because that's such a weird character motivation, such a niche character motivation, that he's hmm. asking us to care about, and by kind of asking us to be bought into it, I think he's he's trying to he's trying to talk about a group of people that he very much admires and their kind of strength of character and the rest of it. Hmm. Um, it was really cool. Yeah, the, the, what they were planning to do, the reason they want to study them, and the reason Malcolm's interested, is they have the opportunity to observe a, a species that's gone extinct alive. And how you know what are the chances of doing that, and what what sort of what sort of assertions can they draw and what sort of things can they conclusively prove that they wouldn't be able to do before? Which all sounds great. Mm. But the thing they... Yeah. I, I, the, well, the, the thing they don't know, um, and they should really work, be able to work out, I suppose, but is this conversation that Henry Wu and Hammond had in the first book, which I always think about when they start talking about how we're going to blow the whole like theory of extinction wide open by observing behaviour of real dinosaurs. They're not real dinosaurs. Yeah. They're basically yeah. monsters that look like dinosaurs. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and um, and this idea that behaviour is like genetically located as well. Like I, I'm, I obviously I'm no expert on this. I've no science background or anything like that. But I do. I have lived in and currently live in a um, uh, like post conflict environment where a lot of like normal like common knowledge about um, what was normal in terms of raising kids and in terms of nutrition and in terms of healthcare and stuff like that is just. You only need to lose one generation for all that stuff to be lost. It's, it's as far mm. as I can tell, completely socially located. You know, the things that, that mark out um, what's normal in Cambodia against what's, what's normal in, you know, the part of the UK I grew up in and so on. It, you know, that stuff is, you know, is not genetic at all. And, um, mm. and so I, I, like you, was reading this going, yeah, but it's not. You're gonna. All you're gonna learn is what it. I mean, this is basically a more high budget version of playing with dinosaur toys and expecting to learn something about how they raise their kids. Like, oh, I'm Mr. Triceratops. Oh, I'm Mrs. T. Rex. Let's look at how we raise our children. Ooh, let's. It's for science. You know, like, no, it's not. It's it's whimsical. It's pleasing. It's cute. It's not science. Um, <laughs> but again, I'm quite glad that I didn't think that when I was 14 because that would fairly comprehensively have wrecked the rest of the book. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I just always think back to when, when Wu's saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, we flick on a, a gene that does this and flick off one that does that and changes the colour and stuff. And we basically create what we think a dinosaur is. Yeah. Um, but it's basically, yeah. it's not, yeah, you know, it's not a dinosaur. It's what a load of scientists together have said, this is what we think a dinosaur probably is like. Roughly, <laughs> give or take ish. Yeah. 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 But um, but yeah, I mean, uh, you got to kind of put it to one side because the whole idea of just seeing people 
watching dinosaurs it's just amazing so <laughs> i'm gonna stick yeah. my uh naysaying back on the shelf now and just say this yeah well be i mean it's it's fucking it's, it's a techno thriller isn't it and while it is going to continue to invite us to see it as a science textbook and i still think it actually for me age 14 it had a lot of value as a science textbook nonetheless um the uh the the purpose of it is to be a thrilling narrative not to be a science lesson and as that it really still works hmm. uh, okay that's as far as we're going this week uh, for next week if you're reading along with us we're going from uh page in my book 186 so the red queen um as far as a chapter called trailer which is about page yeah. 250 in my book right. and if you've watched the film you should be quite a quite a interested yeah. To hear that a chapter about trailer is coming up, although it sounds pretty <laughs> dull if you haven't seen the film. <laughs> Just if you haven't, go with it. Go with it. Just stay. Yeah, here. it's going to be good. Oh, also before we go, um, the investigation that has begun. Never mind the Mueller investigation. We've got the big one, the Conger investigation. Who is the Lost World dedicated to? Um, oh yeah, I've tweeted Carolyn Conger. Oh, PhD. brilliant. Any reply? Um, no. <laughs> no. Reply, yeah. You had me there. But um <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I'm gonna keep um I have I looked on her Twitter profile and her pinned tweet is about a Jurassic Park. Which she I mean must, that's, that, she must be That's the, the smoking gun there. Dedicated. That is yeah. the smoking gun, isn't it? That <laughs> that's the Downing Street memo. <laughs> okay, so we'll we will give you a further update on that um next week as well. Um, but in, in, until then, if if, if you want to if you want to sort of help us in the investigation as well, let us know. Uh, send us some feedback. Sharkliverallpodcast at gmail dot um, But yeah, until next week, enjoy the next next part of it, and uh, we will return. With part three. Such a good impression. I love it. Thanks, man. You get two of those a week. That's that's what you get. <laughs>